Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. If you'll pull out your sermon notes, because I want to give a disclaimer this morning. It says the secret to a successful marriage, and you might be thinking, oh good, we have someone in the pulpit who is the foremost expert in marriage. I am well aware that some of you have been married longer than I've been alive. So for me to tell you that I have the secret for you would be preposterous. But God does know what the secret to a successful marriage is, and so I want to share that with you this morning. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1, we're going to cover verses 1 through 7 this morning says this, the likewise wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, and if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I know this is kind of a hot button issue with some, and we've even studied this in our Sunday school classes uh, very recently. Because women want to know, what does it really say about us submitting to our husbands? Because I'll tell you that some of our husbands don't deserve that uh, behavior from me. Well, what does God have to say about it? Well, first thing you need to know, the Word of God is not a series of verses. If it were a series of verses, it would be very easy for us to pick and choose what fits where, what fits with my life, what fits with your life, as opposed to the context of all of it. The Word is a revelation of the will of God and for His people. As such, the Word is at times narrative, revealing the manner in which the people of God lived under various conditions throughout the ages. And it speaks of their confusion and of their response, their victories, their defeats. But always the word reveals God's love for his people. And at other times, the word of God is poetry. Now praising God and now pouring out complaints because the writer does not understand God's way. The vast majority of the New Testament consists of letters, each presenting instruction necessary for our welfare and our 
growth in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So know that it's not something that we're able to take piece by piece. We need to take this as a whole. And I fear that this particular passage before us this morning has too often been read in isolation, as though it was somehow intended to uh, stand alone. Now, of course, the passage is complete in one sense, but Peter's intent cannot be understood if it is isolated from the whole of the letter. Peter, writing Jewish Christians, exalts the call each believer has received from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And beyond this, several themes should stand out to us. You see, Peter develops a theology of suffering. And this is necessary since Christians themselves are sinners and once lived in darkness. Some of us as Christians are still living in darkness. But having been redeemed, Peter intently scrutinizes the church. You realize that he's writing to these congregations who form living temples of God, whose members share together in teaching and service, and who are characterized by the deep love for one another. People forming the temple of God are marked by mutual respect, which is not always evident in the darkened world that is around them. And suffice to say, it's the same for us today. The other strong emphasis throughout this letter is on Christian conduct. In particular, Peter is concerned with holiness. How we live reveals the presence of Christ among us. Nowhere is this more certain than in our homes. Christian husbands and wives are on the front lines of life. Dying people are watching Christians, both men and women, to see the reality of Christ's presence within them. So I think it's duly important that we all share the same role. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You see, the key to understanding this passage is through Peter's words, in the same way. Reference that, in the same way. The key to this understanding is one that is concerning to the Christian home. And in particular, the respective roles of wives and husbands. And is the phrase in the same way. You will notice that for both wives and husbands, Peter uses this phrase. Wives in the same way in verse 1. Husbands in the same way in verse 7. In the same way. Now these Words take us back to the preceding chapter and serve to tie together the instructions for both husbands and wives. And early in the second chapter, Peter focuses on the church in a institutional sense. At that point in the letter, he informs us that Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And thus, as sojourners and exiles, they are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. In fact, Christians are admonished 
Continue to live upright lives among the Gentiles that when they slander you as practicers of evil, they will see your good actions and glorify God when he visits them. 1 Peter 2.13, which we discussed last week, is the beginning of an entire section on the manner in which Christians are to live good lives. And throughout this section, you will notice a recurring command. And no, it's not a bad word. It's submit. We need to submit. Excuse me. For the Lord's sake, submit yourselves to every human authority, whether to the king as supreme or others. Though some of us may feel as though we are slaves, Peter addresses each of us who work in our contemporary social setting, writing, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. The passage will conclude with a final plea from him, which is issued to, sorry, which is issued to all of you. He writes, finally, all of you must live in harmony. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers and be compassionate and humble. Between are the words of our text this morning. You see, submission is the rule for husbands as well as it is for wives. Indeed, submission is the rule for all who are Christians. A submissive attitude demonstrates that we are different from the inhabitants of this dying world. Therefore, whatever I have to say will provide practical um, instruction to husbands and how to be submissive. Above all else, Peter is concerned that both husbands and wives will honor God through resisting the allure of this world to exalt oneself instead of what we're called to do, and that is to embrace the respective roles in which God has assigned to us. So what are the characteristics of a godly wife. You see, the principle of expecting submission of a wife is not a matter of human convention, but it's rather the order which the Creator has established. It has nothing to do with what we've set forth for ourselves. It has already been established by God. We have seen this principle repeatedly expounded in previous exposition of this particular scripture, as I know we've all gone through this before, and I know many women are always questioning, what does this really mean? Does this mean I submit to everything? The answer is yes, and the answer is also no. So we have to understand what that really means, and why is that a characteristic of a godly wife? You need to recall the apostles' 1 Corinthian letter to see this principle fully stated. It says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. So the Apostle Peter 
advances the expectation of a wife's submission to her whole to her husband on a whole nother level here. However, applying it to a wife who is married to a pagan. So understand that a woman who is married to someone who is not a Christian. So wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In fact, through the submissive spirit, the wife has an opportunity to bring her husband to the faith. And that is in contrast to what wives often think is needed to bring their husbands to uh, faith in the Son of God. And they think that's preaching from the pulpit. That's not always necessarily so. I love it when you're here. But that's not really what God is saying here. God is saying, and Peter is saying, seemingly he invests considerably more time in addressing the responsibility of wives than he does in verse 7 of the text. And then he does Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. So there's another reference to this, Ephesians chapter 5. You can make note of that. So the reason for this appears to be that a believing woman is more likely to be married to a non-believer than is a believing man. Women tend to be more sensitive to the call of the Spirit of God. And without question, many women become believers after marriage. A woman who believes is faced with a monumental task in bringing her husband to faith in the risen Lord of glory. It is not likely, almost impossible, that she could ever win her husband to faith by pleading, by nagging, or by preaching. Women, you don't nag, do you? No, not at all. But you see, it is a tragic truth that Christian women often marry non-Christian men. And it's not really encouraged in the church to marry those individuals who are not of like faith. Guidance for that policy is provided by the instruction of the apostle when he gave to the Corinthians when he wrote, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Paul's admonition to us to follow the Savior, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So that must surely apply in this instance. <laughs> so while we may not agree, we also have the explanation of why we should adhere to that particular teaching from God. Basically, it is concluded that women harbor the thought that they will change a man after marriage. Given the most favorable of circumstances, given the most ripe opportunity, they figure, you know what, he may not know God now, or he may not do what I want him to do now. But I think I'm strong enough and I'm going to be able to do that. I'm going to be able to change him. And we know people like this in our lives who have tried to do so with very little success. Now, granted, sometimes it works. It works. But 
without Christ in the center of that, it's definitely not going to work. So like I said, women seem to be more often in this situation, and whatever the reason of being united to a non-Christian husband, Peter does not hesitate to address this situation. But I also know this, I don't want to leave you with the impression that the situation of a Christian woman married to a non-Christian man is hopeless. Peter is quite bold in stating that there is hope. The woman must determine that she will adopt a godly strategy, and if she wishes to hold out hope of seeing her husband saved, she must follow the Lord. In short, the responsibility to be godly is identical for a Christian woman, whether married to a Christian or a pagan. She is to be a godly wife. What characteristics would mark the life of a godly wife? Peter lists four such characteristics in this passage. Two characteristics are respect and purity. And so the text this morning, you will note that Peter has in view a husband who persistently rejects the word. The assumption is that both husband and wife have been confronted with the call of Christ. The wife has accepted that call, but the husband is unpersuaded. In such an environment of antagonism, the wife is to endeavor to honor Christ through her manner of life without oral pleas. Instead of trying to coax her husband or to argue with him into becoming a Christ follower, she will be more effective by quietly living out the saving power of the gospel. Whatever else may be certain, we know that purity should mark each Christian's life. The, this position is assuredly advanced in this Philippian letter. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Philippians chapter 4. You may recall that Paul counseled older women to teach young women how to be pure. A pure life is evidence of divine wisdom. Living in anticipation of the return of Christ purifies one's life. Now, coupled to this purity of life is reverence towards God. This is not a call to become a plastic saint, as they call them. It is rather a call to hold God in awe. Remember, we talked about this a few months ago, about the word awesome, how a lot of us throw out that word all the time. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. This is awesome. That word is primarily used to describe our relationship to God and what he does for us. He is awesome. Amen. The literal term that Peter tells us to do is to fear, is to fear. To hold God in fear is not to cringe before him, but it is rather to be in awe of him. To fear God is to hold an attitude of worship, to long to do what pleases him and to long to spend time 
in his presence. Discomfort in the presence of sin. Refusal to solely one's life. Seeking to find what honors God and pursuing hard after God's will. Worshiping him as God. These are the characteristics that mark a godly person. Peter states that such marks are more powerful in bringing an unbelieving husband to faith to the Son of God than there are of arguments between whether he should or should not have that relationship. Purity and reverence are powerful <laughs> for winning unrepentant husbands. Wives might be able to attest to that. You might have that testimony. George Muller told of a wealthy man in Germany whose wife was a devout believer. And this man was a heavy drinker, spending late nights in the bar, and she would send the servants to bed and stay up until he returned, receive him kindly, and never scolded him or complained about him. At times, she would even have to undress him and put him to bed. So one night in the bar, he said to his friends, I bet that if we go home right now to my house, my wife will be sitting up waiting for me. She'll come to the door, give us a royal welcome, and even make dinner for us if I ask her. They were skeptical at first, at first the friends, but they decided to go along and see if this were true. Sure enough, she came to the door. She received them, uh, willingly agreed to make dinner for all of them, without the slightest trace of resentment. After serving the men, she went off to her room, and as soon as she had left, one of the men began to condemn the husband. What kind of man are you to treat such a good woman so miserably? The accuser got up without finishing his dinner, and he left the house. Another did the same, and another, until they had all departed without eating the meal. Within a half an hour, the husband became deeply convicted of his wickedness and especially of his heartless treatment towards his wife. He went to his wife's room, asked her to pray with him, and he repented of his sins, and he surrendered to Christ from that time on. And he became a, devote, a devoted disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was one without a word. He then goes on to write, do not be discouraged if you have to suffer from unconverted relatives. Perhaps very shortly the Lord may give you the desire of your heart and answer your prayer for them. But in the meantime, seek to commend the truth, not by reproaching them on account of their behavior towards you, but by manifesting toward them the meekness the gentleness, the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second characteristic marking the life of a godly wife is a gentle and quiet spirit, as we find in verse 4. Peter does not, and contrary to the concepts of some within the faith, he does not argue against making oneself attractive. An old saying teaches that beauty is only skin deep, right? We know that. And that's pretty accurate. However, there is no premium placed on ugly. Do you know that? 
Moreover, a winsome character makes up for a ton of makeup. Men, would you agree? I would agree. The force of the apostles' words leads to the undeniable conclusion that a wife should not depend upon outward beauty, but rather she should be secure in her character. In other words, confident in herself. She should work to develop the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, I could wish that Christian people, and more particularly the members and adherents of this congregation, would cease emphasizing physical beauty in our children. You may not understand what I'm talking about. A woman is not more valuable because she's curvaceous or has a very symmetrical face. We should wish we should commend our young children, both boys and girls, when they reveal a gentle and quiet spirit. So let us resolve to teach our young men to be manly and our young ladies to be gracious and confident. How is it that we are willing to acknowledge the words which God spoke to Samuel concerning the divine view of people while denying those very words in our own daily life? Who are we to do that? And if you don't know what I'm referring to, it's this, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. No one should ever imagine that Samuel's words are restricted to kings or to young shepherd boys. Rather here, they are a revelation of God's view of all mankind, even girls and women. God looks on the secrets of our heart. Ladies, the gentle and quiet spirit which Peter commends is the same strength of character which Jesus revealed in his own life. So guess what, ladies? You're on the right track. Men, we need a little help sometimes, don't we? But this is what God is saying. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. This is the statement of his own character. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, a godly woman does not depend upon a boisterous attitude or huge displays. She is pure. She's reverent. She's gentle and quiet in her spirit. And Peter backs up this instruction and appeals to the example of the saintly women of the Old Testament. Gentleness and a quiet spirit will lead a godly woman to be submissive towards her husband. Sarah referred to Abraham as curion, or master. Peter apparently refers to Genesis chapter 18. There, Sarah speaks of Abram as her master, Adon. These women were holy, not in the sense of being morally good, but in the sense of being called by God and inspired by his spirit. Essentially, they hoped in God. 
And the third characteristic of a godly wife is that she does good. Reference to verse 6. She does good. Peter is likely writing to women who were not Jewish, for they had been Jewish, they would have already been Sarah's daughters. But having come into the faith, they will prove their divine relationship to these holy women who hoped in God. And how do they do that? By doing good. The emphasis is upon actions with a submissive spirit. Um, no doubt, primarily, this goes on a battle in their mind which we often do quite often, don't we? We constantly battle God in our minds. You know, we know we know what's good, but it doesn't always adhere to what we want or what we think we need. So Peter is saying that if a, if a wife trusts in God, she will not be afraid of anything that a quote-unquote pagan husband, or for that matter, a Christian one, who does not act in a Christian manner or what they may do to her. You see, the fear of God is a positive attitude that is accomplished by hope in him and him alone. Those are the characteristics of a godly wife. What about characteristics of a godly man or a godly husband? How many of us husbands go through the motions of saying prayers only to discover that we have no answered prayers to which we can point to. See, the final clause of Peter's instructions should give every man pause if his prayer life is deficient. Gentlemen, the first place we should look when our prayers are unanswered is our relationship to our wives. Peter speaks pointedly to the responsibilities of a husband, especially towards his wife. Together with the instructions Paul provides in Ephesians chapter 5, I had you reference, and Colossians chapter 3, Peter provides a complete picture of what a husband's duties are towards his wife. At a superficial level, husbands are expected to be considerate and respectful towards their wives. It will be helpful to note that Peter also is addressing Christian husbands, not just pagan husbands. See, these men are married to women recognized as heirs with them. Underline that word, with. With. Non-Christian men cannot expect to meet the standard, in part because they haven't the spiritual capacity to fulfill the divine mandate that God has given to them because they have not accepted it. But those characteristics of a godly wife showing that through them and allowing God to work through them can give her hope that he can change. should give him hope to know that he must seek and desire a, relation, a relationship with Christ. Though it is obvious that Peter has invested but one verse addressing husbands in this passage. Men should not assume that he has little to say to them as husbands. There is a phrase which is repeated in the opening words of this verse, which remind us all that he has preceded in the previous 19 verses applies. Likewise, husbands. See, the Greek adverb omios 
is a means of comparison. And in this case, indeed means in the same way, or similarly, or likewise, as found in our text. See, the issue is submission for the sake of propriety. So husbands are to exhibit a submissive spirit towards all authority. This obviously means that husbands are to respect the laws of this nation. No Christian man should be ever guilty of abusing his wife. No Christian man, likewise, should rebel against his employers. There should be a submissive attitude. And such an attitude of submission is not simply because it is commanded, nor because the consequences may be great. A husband should meet the law of avoiding abusing his wife, not because of fear of legal consequences, but because he is under a higher law of honoring God. And likewise, a husband should not rebel against his employer simply because he fears of being fired. He should endeavor to fulfill the work assigned in godly fashion because in doing so, he provides stability for his wife and family. And this is but a practical application of the command undergirding the text of our previous study last week. Whatever you do in word or deed and do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this is so important that I wish to take a moment longer to focus on this thought. See, husbands owe a duty of respect to all mankind. We recognize that a Christian husband does have authority over his wife, but it should be apparent from this passage that he is required to exercise his authority with proper deference. He is a delegated authority and not an authority by right. He holds his position by virtue of God's appointment and not by reason of superior ability or superior uh, suitability. When men recognize they have no authority except that which is granted by God, they will hold their authority as a responsibility and not a right. In fact, a proper understanding of a husband's authority will lead him to discover what pleases the Lord and also recognize that he is the one who grants him that position. When he has researched that responsibility, the discerning husband will discover that he has to be understanding as he lives with his wife. And this command is somewhat difficult to understand sometimes. As our text says, we men are to live with wives in an understanding way. So what pleases God is a husband pleasing his wife. Let me say that again. God is pleased when we please our wives. God expects a Christian husband to make the effort to understand his wife. We fail in that area sometimes, don't we? Right, Warren? Yeah. 
We do. We do. But know that this is not an impossible task. But it is a necessary task if we will honor God and set the stage for a successful marriage. The term that Peter uses comes very near and dear to our expression, which would speak of making a home for one's wife. In short, the command is that husbands are responsible to understand their wives. And this is a lifelong process which weighs upon each Christian husband because we don't always get it right. So this, this is a lifelong process. And thank goodness God made women patient. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Husbands are to have a desire to know what their wives are thinking. Oh, boy. That's a loaded one. But it is. We are to think about what our wives are thinking and to anticipate what will please them. Christian husbands are responsible to act with reason and common sense toward their wives. Oh boy. They are also to have an understanding of the Christian principles directing the marriage relationship. So ultimately, Christian husbands are responsible for understanding the nature of their wives. Now, I did not say that this would be easy because, men, if you are married, you know it's not. But know this, it is necessary if we will please God and if we will build our wives up. We are to understand our wives. And I know all the jokes concerning the misunderstanding of the sexes, and especially do I know <laughs> the misunderstanding which comes with that. And, and, and to know all the humor concerning the manner in which men fail to understand women. The need for understanding refers to Christian insight and tact, a, a conscious sensitivity to God's will. Christian knowledge consists not in a intellectual superiority, but in understanding uh, sympathy and respect for the weak. And this is the teaching of Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 13. Concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom all things are for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, Eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And it goes on and ends. Therefore, 
If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. What does this have to do with marriage? Everything. We Men, we must be understanding. And though God is talking about building up our wives, I don't believe that this responsibility is to be revealed in every facet of life as husbands build their wives. Because no man has warrant to tear down his wife. Understand that. That is God-driven. We are not to tear down our wives. Rather, men are to treat their wives with respect. And the reason for this is twofold. Wives are the weaker vessel, and wives are also heirs with us as husbands for the grace of this life. This business of treating one's wife with respect is nothing short of realizing what God has done in giving you a wife. Literally, husbands are to assign value to their wives as co-heirs. Christian husbands are to esteem their wives as valuable. They are to hold their wives in honor because they are heirs with us. We believe this to be true, but we frequently appear to have forgotten that we share this faith. Wives and husbands are equal, equal in the faith of Christ the Lord. One does not have precedence over the other. Solomon had a great insight when he wrote, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So we are not to treat our wives with disrespect. Rather, each husband is to consider his wife as one who stands by grace before the Lord. We must always remember that we enter eternity as singles. Wives shall not be wives in heaven, but they shall be saints, redeemed by the grace of Christ the Lord. Husbands shall not be husbands in heaven, but they shall be fellow heirs with their wives. So here is the ultimate equality. The ultimate equality. But I must make note of one fact. Peter here refers to a wife as the weaker vessel. And most people would look at that and say, well, that's a very negative thing to say about your wife. You're the weaker vessel, honey. No. Make note of this. He is referring to the physical strength. And I know there are women bodybuilders who could crush me in an instance. I know that. But in general, God here is saying with less greater physical strength. And there is nothing in his statement concerning moral or ethical standing. Nor should we attempt to read anything further into that statement that God makes. You should also notice that he speaks to the wife as the weaker vessel for both males and females. In other words, men, we are weak. Women, you are weak. We are all weak. We live and we die. Each of us shares the weakness of mortality. And so as long as we are in this body, women tend to have less strength, though they do manage to outlive us. So there you go. Great strength or live longer? Which one you take? I don't know. But I'm also not convinced by the text that there is more than this immediate meaning. But I nevertheless recognize that there is room for a further consideration in assigning the role of a wife 
the designation of the weaker vessel. I don't think that's completely true. Because I know, I don't know about your marriage, but I know I'm going to talk about our marriage for a second. There have been times in my marriage where I was the weaker individual and my wife was there to build me up. And likewise, there were times when she was weaker and I was there to build her up. And I know many of you who have been in a marriage longer than five minutes understand that statement to be true. And if you've been married for four minutes, don't worry, it'll come. Okay? Husbands and wives are God's handiwork. Despite the foolishness of contemporary thought, husbands and wives, men and women, are designed for each other. And consequently, in the divine economy, both men and women are weak. Men are to recognize the obvious disparity in physical strength and lend their strength to their wives, not hold it over them. At the same time, men are also responsible to recognize that their wives are spiritual heirs of God with them, with them. Thus, men are to always balance the physical need with the spiritual equality. When they balance this understanding, husbands will make every effort to understand their wives and to supply those needs insofar as they are capable of doing. We should not be disparaging women as weak. And I'm also acknowledging that a woman's strength should not be thought of as physical. There may be exceptions, but the exception only proves the rule. Women can strengthen men, and men are definitely responsible to give their strength to their wives. I have for years acknowledged my wife's strengths in areas in which I am weak. That is by no accident. That's God's way of saying, humble yourself, right? Peter assumed to be speaking to men of prayer and men I address and I assume that you are men of prayer. But I'm going to ask the question this morning. Men, how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? What great answers have you received to your prayers this past week? Far too often we fall under the censure of James' scathing words. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Just as frequently, I fear that we do not have because we have failed to honor our wives as heirs with us. Because it's one of the gracious gifts that God has given to us. And there's an incredible insight in these words. So we should not be surprised by the correlation of marital relationship and answered prayer. Our relationship with our fellow saints has an impact on our relationship with God. Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Agreement with and forgiveness of our fellow saints ensures the blessing 
of God. Love of our brothers ensures the love of God towards us. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God from whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If fellowship with the greater community of faith has an impact on our relationship to God, should we be surprised if our relationship in the home has an impact on our relationship with God? Absolutely not. It definitely has a correlation. And though Peter has dealt with the hindered prayers of a neglectful husband, I suggest that wives must also be concerned about hindered prayers. Paul, writing in Corinthians, addresses that delicate subject, which bears on the subject of hindered prayers. But that's for another time, and we'll get into that more. But to finish up, what if only one of the partners is a Christian? Understand this, the relationship should still be marked by respect and love. The love of the Christian partner will include something of the love of God himself for those who have not yet discovered his grace. The Christian partner in such a marriage is encouraged to hold precisely such love for an unconverted spouse. Likewise, the Christian partner is urged to live in such a way to commend the Christian faith of his or her unconverted partner. In other words, we have hope in God. You might be in a place where, husband and wives, you may be married to someone who is not a follower. And although we live in a world which women occupy roles of leadership in society and likewise enjoy leadership among the churches in a manner that was largely unknown in the first century, it is surely still the case that a quiet spirit is preferable to a raucous, unmannerly character. If the effeminate man acts unnaturally for his sex, so too does the woman who tries to emulate masculine traits in her lifestyle. So what's the secret? If we learn to treat our spouses with respect, we honor the Lord. We honor the Lord. And Peter provides sound instruction here for how we are to honor our spouse. You see, the world watches the lives of us who follow Christ to see if it's real. If we are merely pretending to be transformed by the Spirit. If Christ is central in our lives as husbands and as wives, God will be glorified and outsiders will be witness to a brief glimpse of heaven. Do you know that? We honor our husbands, we honor our wives. It is honoring to God and in turn, Others who do not know his grace will have a glimpse of what heaven might really be. God will be glorified. God will be glorified. May God give us godly homes 
that glorify his name. Amen. Amen. David, come. For those of you who do not know of this relationship to Christ, we want to give you an opportunity this morning. And if you don't know him, that today would be the day that you do know him. And we want to talk with you. We want to pray with you. We want to come alongside you and guide you in those situations and those opportunities that God has laid out before you. I know so many of us are looking around and we're waiting for this grand gesture from God and this big opportunity to run to. But God has already placed responsibility in front of us. So we would be mindful to open our eyes and see that opportunity in front of us. And I think we have that opportunity this morning that we can see what's in front of us and understand that we don't have to have this great position. We can do that right here in Winton. We can bloom right where we stand. And so we're going to do that this morning. If you have a decision to make this morning, maybe you want to make your commitment to Jesus Christ public for the first time. We want to celebrate with you and welcome you. If you want prayer, maybe somebody to come with you. Pray. You pray right where you're at. Could very well be you want to join this fellowship and get involved with the kingdom work here in Winton. Please do so. We have a strong and kind Savior. A strong and kind Savior. And at this time, we're asking that you would just consider where you are this morning with Jesus Christ. He will meet you where you're at and he will love you and mold you to where he wants you to be. You can count on that. So come forward. Jesus said that if I thirst, I should come to him. No. Jesus said, yeah. 
Let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our church. Thank you so much for its leadership and more importantly, their love for you. Thank you that we have an opportunity that is placed before us, Lord, that you would call us to do the things that seem impossible at times, but we can do all things through your strength. We thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the individuals who come and to that share their lives with others so that you will be glorified. Thank you, Lord, for this day, and we love you and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. Have a great day and the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.